Jesus was saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, as we do week by week, we ask you to join us here this morning and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The disciples must have felt like there was no floor underneath their feet. They were perpetually off balance. They had felt moved, each one of them, to follow this teacher Jesus around, but he kept saying things that didn't fit with their expectations. Last week, Jesus had fed 4,000 people with just seven loaves and a few small fish. Not last week in 2018, but last week in uh, Mark chapter 8. I mean, that was crazy, feeding so many with so little, but that was actually the second time he'd done it. He, fed, he had fed more with even less. Then, in Caesarea Philippi, their friend Peter, really one of their leaders, the one that they looked up to, had been sternly rebuked by Jesus just last week, called Satan, in fact, for suggesting that Jesus' suffering and death should be prevented. Again, this is all in Mark chapter 8. And then as some kind of odd explanation for that incident, Jesus said this very confusing thing about anyone who would come after him had to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. He said that whoever would save his life would lose it, but that whoever lost their life for his sake or for the sake of the gospel would save it. So the disciples are shaken. Down seems like up, up seems like down. Life apparently is death and death is life, and they're afraid to say the wrong thing. And then, just a couple of days ago, now moving into Mark 9, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and Peter had put his foot in his mouth again. James and John had been excited to tell all the other disciples all about what had happened. Jesus got all bright and shiny, and all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah could be seen walking around with him. The law, the prophets, and the Messiah all together. And Peter suggested that they stay together. Sounds reasonable, right? Let's stay right here with the law, the prophets, and the gospel all in one place. And a booming voice from heaven corrects him. This is my son, the voice from heaven says, singling out Jesus. Listen to him. And then there was that humiliating episode where they tried to cast out a demon, but couldn't. And then Jesus comes and does it easily. I mean, they knew they weren't Jesus, but they figured that by this time, they'd be able to do some stuff by themselves, right? And then today. Goodness, what a day. Jesus, again, talking about his death and resurrection, but by now the disciples have learned their lesson, and no one says a word. Of course, they'd been saying plenty on the walk over. They'd been arguing about 
which one of them was the greatest. And I can almost hear Jesus coming in with the, guys, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. It's extended passages like this. Two chapters that make me identify with the disciples so profoundly. Two full chapters of misunderstanding what Jesus is up to. These men who probably could have, in the intervening years, done a lot to make themselves look better in the story. Right? Let's just leave that little part out, please, don't you think? But of course they didn't. Because they knew that the good news about Jesus was that he came to and stayed with the perpetually disappointing. Because don't so many of us think that this is God's posture towards us, right? Not angry, but disappointed. See, we know enough about the gospel to know that God's not angry with us, right? The wrath of God satisfied forever on the cross. We've got that. But still, many people suspect that God is a little disappointed. He'd like us to be doing a little bit better than we are sort of like a loving but exasperated parent. I still love you, and I'm not going to kick you out of the house, but I am not happy with the way things are going right now. But listen, that's not true either. That news isn't good enough. Our good news is better than that. A disappointed parent, or God, can feel just as distant and judgmental as an angry one. See, the key thing to understand here about the disciples and their continued misunderstanding is that it's not the how to live your life that they're misunderstanding. They know how to be good. Their problem is that they're continually fixated on how good they are and misunderstanding how good the good news is. If Jesus is disappointed in them, that's why. They're not yet grasping the amazing grace of the gospel. When Peter is rebuked by Jesus, when Jesus turns and says to him, get behind me, Satan, it's because Peter is trying to help Jesus be what Peter thinks of as successful. The good news is better than success. Torture and death, thinks St. Peter, is not the way to victory. But Jesus knows that if your calling is to bear the sins of the world and to give your righteousness to sinners, death and resurrection is the only way to go. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, the misunderstanding is that the law and the prophets are somehow equal to the Messiah, to the Gospel. The law and the prophets, symbolized by Moses and Elijah, and Jesus, the gospel. But the good news is better than that. These three things are not all equal. The gospel always overcomes the law. Now for us, in Christ, the love of God always defeats the judgment of God. And the cross is the battlefield where that victory is won. And it's a total misunderstanding to want to keep the law, the prophets, and the gospel on sort of equal footing. Let's build three tents, says St. Peter. Let's stay here 
with these three wonderful things all equal. And the voice from heaven comes booming. No, absolutely not this. This one is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's how good this good news is. And when the cloud evaporates, Jesus remains alone. And then this greatness hang-up that we have in our reading this morning. The disciples are surprised when they can't cast out a demon, and Jesus can. And then they're arguing as they walk about which one of them is the best. It's all this same misunderstanding again and again and again. Not understanding just how good the good news is. They've got everything backwards. They think that victory is something like upward mobility, strength, or power. They're falling prey to the same lie that tricked Adam and Eve in the garden. Eat this fruit and you will be like God. And today, we are still reaping the results of that fateful bite. You will be like God. Wow! And there's that wonderful scene in the George Clooney movie, Up in the Air, where he and Vera Farmiga are comparing their collections of loyalty cards. You know, American Express Black, United Airlines Ambassadors Club, Hertz Gold Club, and so on. And then as Vera Farmiga so aptly says, we are people who are turned on by elite status. Isn't that the truth? We seek it. We need it. We'll do anything to get it. We would totally be arguing about which one of us was the greatest. Did you notice at dinner the other night, Jesus gave me the first hunk of bread that he tore off the loaf? Did you see the way he looked at me yesterday when I correctly answered his question about the Messiah? We're totally in. Now, perhaps you've occasionally found yourself comparing yourself to another Christian in some way. Anyway, this is that same backward thinking, the same allure of elite status. So Jesus sits them down again and explains to them how the good news works. If you are elite, you don't need it. Freedom comes from giving up the quest for privilege. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And even this isn't some reverse eliteness, a race to the back of the line, because you know that whoever's in the back is eventually going to be in the front. Jesus is telling them what he himself will do. He will be last. He will die for them, so that they, so that we, might live. Now, the upside-down nature of Christ's victory for us is expressed beautifully in Samuel Candy's 1838 hymn, His Be the Victor's Name. Listen to these words. By weakness and defeat, he won the glorious crown, trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He hell in hell laid low, 
made sin, he sin overthrew, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death, by dying, slew. What though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. This is how a righteous God saves a sinful humanity. But it's better. This is how Jesus saves you. In weakness and defeat. By being trodden down. By being made sin. And by dying. And the result? The good news. When the vile accuser roars of all the sins you've done, all the ways you're not deserving, all the things you've gotten wrong, all the elite status you don't have, you can say, I know. And I know even more. But on account of Christ and his sacrifice for me, my God knoweth None. And this is the most upside down and backward thing of all. A perfectly righteous Savior gives his perfect righteousness to a profoundly needy sinner. You and me, redeemed. Amen.